Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 97th episode of the Nauticast titled, A Lion Still Has Claws, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 6, in which Tyrion brings Cersei good news. Renly and Stannis are fighting each other. Oh, and Tyrion, well, he's also going to poison her, strips her of her protectors, and throws Pycelle into jail without her permission. But oh, for Cersei and Tyrion, this counts as getting along. This is the best, well, one of the best times they're ever going to have as a sibling and as a sibling relationship. This is one of the most Lannister chapters. Like, this is a capital L Lannister chapter. <laughs> Everything glorious and terrible about this dysfunctional ruling family of Westeros is on here in glittering display. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our head of the King Wolfman Sack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord G, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged by Gold, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, Warren of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. The High Bearded Priest. Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King. Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice. Lawrence, Prince of Dorn. Kelly, Warren of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, the proud soy boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer of Dragons, Sir K. W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the waiter for Tewell, A.A. Ron, Dampere Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of the of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneras of House Golgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, the Queen of Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Thank you, folks, very, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Spinal Did Nothing Wrong, a sworn sword patron, who asks, I was thinking about A Clash of Kings, Tyrion Six recently, and wondered, what would have happened if Tyrion had given Cersei something more lethal than Exlax? How would that have changed things in King's Landing at the time, much less after Blackwater? And how long could he have gotten away with it? And that's a great intriguing AU for this uh, for this chapter. So what do you make of that, Jeff? A couple things. I think one of the first things that comes to mind is that Cersei is not going to end up putting Aliyaya into jail and beating her horribly. I think that's probably the first thing that goes well for the kingdom. Uh, secondly, I, I also think a little bit farther beyond Clash and beyond Blackwater and beyond Storm even as to what happens in A Feast for Crows if you don't have Cersei as Queen Regent for Tommen. That's an interesting AU. I think maybe Kevin Lannister then takes on the role. Maybe Jamie also takes on a more advanced role. What would interest me most 
is what happens to Tyrion in terms of his reputation. Because a huge part of Tyrion's story is that he's out of commission after the Blackwater because of his battle injury, so he doesn't get to spin what's been happening during his time as Hand of the King in this whole book to Tywin. Instead, Cersei takes complete control of that narrative. And something I've always wondered is whether Tywin was originally impressed-ish with Tyrion and was completely poisoned against him by Cersei, or whether Tywin was really always playing to have Tyrion hold the left, so to speak, in terms of the Battle of the Green Fork, was never going to give him any credit, and Cersei just gave him excuses to. So, thank you, Sir Spinal, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions here at the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword patron or higher over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Additionally, we'll be rolling out our next patron-only episode, Flag Day, in which we analyze the sigils and heraldry of A Song of Ice and Fire, starting on Monday, January 27th, over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last left Tyrion Lannister, he had toured the Guild Hall of the Alchemists, dismissed the horrors of war with Cleos Frey, and had a lovely, lovely chat with his sister Cersei. Let's find out what becomes of our acting Hand of the King in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion Six. Tyrion hears the high harp and pipes playing and a man singing behind the door to Cersei's chamber, and he knows the song. I loved a maid as fair as summer with sunlight in her hair. Sir Maren Trant was on door duty tonight at Cersei's chambers, and he seems, well, just a little bit annoyed at Tyrion's presence. But he opens the door and lets Tyrion through this time. Inside, Tyrion finds Cersei in chill mode, barefoot with her, quote, golden hair artfully tousled. He compliments Cersei on her beauty and notices that the singer is none other than Sir Lancel Lannister, their cousin. He tells the boy that he had a good voice, but Lancel screws up his face, thinking that Tyrion is mocking him. It seemed to Tyrion that the lad had grown three inches since being knighted. Lancel had thick, sandy hair, green Lannister eyes, and a line of soft blonde fuzz on his upper lip. At sixteen, he was cursed with all the certainty of youth, unleavened by any trace of humor or self-doubt and wed to the arrogance that came so naturally to those born blonde and strong and handsome. His, ele- his, his recent elevation had only made him worse. Lancel demands to know whether, whether Tyrion had been summoned, but no, Tyrion has not been summoned. He's here on his own accord to talk important matters of state with Cersei. When Cersei asks whether it's about her completely justified imprisoning of the begging brothers who were spreading, quote, filthy treasons on the streets, Tyrion says, nah, he's not here about that. Oh, sure, he was annoyed when Cersei had Captain Valar order the arrest of the prophets, but he's not about to expend energy on arguing about that. Instead, he needs to bring news to Cersei, something she needs to hear alone. Very well. The harpist and the piper bowed and hurried out, while Cersei kissed her cousin chastely on the cheek. Leave us, Lancel. My brother's harmless when he's alone. If he brought his pets, we'd smell them. (laughs) We'll see how harmless Tyrion can be when they're alone. Cersei notices that Tyrion seems pleased with himself, and yes, he is. He hops onto Cersei's bed and thinks that his chain is growing longer as the sound of hammers rings through through the street of steel. Tyrion notices that the bed is the same one that Robert died in, and he asks why Cersei kept it. Well, because it gives Cersei sweet dreams. But enough about that. What's the good news, Tyrion? Tyrion smiled. Lord Stannis has sailed from Dragonstone. Cersei bolts her feet. And yet you sit there grinning like a harvest pumpkin? Has Bywater called out the city watch? We must send a bird to Harrenhal once. He was laughing by then. She seized him by the shoulders and shook him. Stop it! Are you mad or drunk? Stop it! all he could do to get the words out. I can't, he gasped. It's too, God's too funny. Stannis, what? He hasn't sailed against us, Tyrion managed. He's laid siege to Storm's End. Renly is riding to meet him. Cersei grips Tyrion's arm hard in utter disbelief at Stannis and Renly fighting, but then she laughs and thinks that maybe Robert was the smart one. Tyrion joins in the laughter and the two, loving 
Siblings? Question mark? Question mark? Are those the right words? Laugh together. Tyr Cersei wonders if maybe Renly and Stannis will make peace rather than fight, but Tyrion doesn't think so. They're too different, and yet too much alike, and neither could ever stomach the other. Cersei recalls Stannis' grievance about Renly being granted Storm's End, and refers to that grievance as the, quote, same dull song and that gloomy, aggrieved tone he has. It's something, I tell you. But I'm not really sure Cersei's being objective. We'll get to that. Tyrion proposes the toast, and Cersei agrees. Tyrion fills two glasses and tosses in a powdery pinch of something into Cersei's glass. He gives Cersei the glass, and he toasts Stannis while Cersei toasts Renly. Tyrion sees Cersei's smile and wonders at it. When she smiled, he saw how beautiful she was, truly. I loved a maid as fair as summer was sunlit in her hair. He almost felt sorry for poisoning her. The next morning, the queen's messenger arrives, informing Tyrion that Cersei had called out sick from work. Tyrion pretends like he gives a shit that Cersei is very much giving a shit, but he'll be able to take on the responsibility of treating with Sir Cleos Frey by his lonesome, as they planned. The iron throne of Aegon the Conqueror was a tangle of nasty barbs and jagged metal teeth waiting for any fool who tried to sit it too comfortably and the steps made his stunted legs cramp as he climbed up to it, all too aware of what an absurd spectacle he must be. Yet, there was one thing to be said for it. It was high. Lannister Red Cloaks and King's Landing Gold Cloaks face each other from opposite ends of the hall, while King's Guard, Courtiers, Supplicants, and even Sansa Stark crowd into the throne room and balcony. Tyrion, to emphasize his earlier thought, really, really likes the view from way up here on the Iron Throne. He orders Sir Cleos Frey to come forward. Cleos walks up to the Iron Throne with Tyrion noticing that he's losing his hair. Gee, I wonder why that is. Could it possibly be all the immense danger that he's gone through to get here and will be going through soon enough? Now, could it be Tyrion? Oh, God. Littlefinger thanks Cleos for bringing Robb Stark's peace terms, but Grand Maester Pycelle that the terms won't do. Tyrion has the new terms. Robb Stark must lay down his sword, swear fealty, and return to Winterfell. He must free my brother unharmed and place his host under Jamie's command to march against the rebels Renly and Stannis Baratheon. Each of Stark's bannermen must send us a son as hostage. A daughter will suffice where there is no son. They shall be treated gently and given high places here at court, so long as their fathers commit no new treasons. Cleos protests that Robb will reject these terms to Tyrion thinks, but doesn't say that, yeah, he expects as much. All the same... The Lannisters have raised a new army in the west, Renly and Stannis are fighting each other, and the Dornish will join with the Iron Throne soon via betrothal between Marcella Baratheon and Tristane Martell. Everyone cheers, and Tyrion continues on, saying that he'll release Harry and Karstark and Willis Manderly in exchange for Willem Lannister and Lord Kerwin and Sir Donald Locke for Tion Frey. Tell Stark that two Lannisters are worth four Northmen in any season. He waited for the laughter to die. His father's bones he shall have as a gesture of Joffrey's good faith. Good faith is real rich coming from you, Tyrion, given what you're about to do and what you have been doing so far in King's Landing. Cleo says that Rob wanted Arya and Sansa as well as his father's great sword, and Tyrion feels just a little bit of pity over Sansa Stark, but he'll only free the, quote, girls, provided Jocelyn Bywater can, of course, find Arya in the streets of King's Landing, which he's not at, after Jaime has been freed. And Ice, Ned Stark's great sword, will be returned to Rob Stark after Rob agrees to the peace. P.S. How well Arya and Sansa will be treated depends entirely on Jamie remaining unharmed. Uh-huh, yeah, sure it does. Cleo says he'll bring the message to Rob, and Tyrion will send an additional escort with his cousin Valar, Valar, and all his sister's red cloaks. You see, it's very much because Cleos is a beloved cousin of Tyrion's and not for some nefarious shit that Tyrion has planned. Right? Right? Wrong. Valar stands there like a stone, but Pycelle starts to protest that the red cloaks exist to protect Cersei and her children. Tyrion dismisses this, stating that the gold cloaks and Kingsguard will do just fine. Thank you. Anyways, off you go, Valar. Tyrion looks down at the small counselors at the council table, sees Varys smiling knowingly, Littlefinger pretending to be bored, and Pycelle, quote, gaping like a fish. 
The Herald comes forward to signal the end of business unless anyone else has anything to say. And then a voice calls out, I will be heard. A slender man, all in black, pushes his way between the red wine twins. It's none other than Sir Alistair Thorne, last seen being packed away by Elsie Mormont to take the rotted hand to King's Landing. Tyrion pretends that he had no idea, none whatsoever, that Sir Alistair was in King's Landing, but Thorne can see through Tyrion's shit. He knows that Tyrion kept him in the dark, and Tyrion blames Bronn for not telling him, recalling falsely how he and Sir Alistair walked the wall together and that they're old friends. Varys puts in that they're just so very busy in these very troubled times, but Sir Alistair says shit's worse than he thinks. He needs to tell the king about it. But the king is busy, playing with his new mirror's crossbow that Tyrion had given him as a distraction from, quote, misruling the kingdom for a little bit. So Alistair will need to speak with the king's servants, as you will. Sir Alistair said displeasure in every word. I am sent to tell you that we have found two rangers long missing. They were dead. Yet when we brought the corpses back to the wall, they rose again in the night. One slew Sir Jeremy Riker, while the second tried to murder the Lord Commander. Tyrion hears someone laugh, and he wonders if one of his small counselors is behind Sir Alistair and whether this is all meant to mock him. Dwarves lived in fear of mockery, but there was something about what Athorne was saying, and it touches a nerve in him. Tyrion remembers being up on the wall with Jon Snow, feeling something in the darkness. A dread, almost. But he rationalizes this is an irrational fear on his part. He likes Jir Mormont, though, so he asks after him. As we know, Mormont survived the attack, and Thorne reports as much. And the uh, brothers, they killed these uh, dead men? We did. You're certain they're dead this time, Tyrion asked mildly. When Bronn choked on a snort of laughter, he knew how he must proceed. Truly, truly dead? They were dead the first time, Sir Alistair snapped, pale and cold with black hands and feet. I brought Jared's hand, torn from his corpse by the bastard's wolf. Littlefinger asks if they can see the hand, but Sir Alistair frowns and reports that it's rotted to pieces while he was there waiting around. So Tyrion tells Littlefinger to buy a hundred spades for Alistair's journey back to the wall, so that the Night's Watch can bury their dead just a little bit better. Tyrion then orders Jaslyn Bywater to give Alistair his pick of the dungeons. When Jaslyn says that the dungeons are nearly empty, Tyrion then orders more rest and for word to be spread that there are bread and turnips up at the wall. Then he dismounts the Iron Throne and makes for the, and makes for the exit. Sir Alistair Thorne was not so easily dismissed. He was waiting at the foot of the Iron Throne when Tyrion descended. Do you think I sailed all this way from Eastwatch by the sea to be mocked by the likes of you? He fumed, blocking the way. This is no jape. I saw it with my own eyes. I tell you, the dead walk. Well, you should try to kill them more thoroughly. Tyrion pushed past. Sir Alistair made to grab his sleeve, but Preston Greenfield thrust it back. No closer, sir. Thorne knew better than to challenge a knight of the King's Guard. You are a fool, imp. He shouted at Tyrion's back. The dwarf turned to face him. Me? Truly? Then why were they laughing at you, I wonder? He smiled wanly. You came for men, did you not? The cold winds are rising, and the wall must be held. Tyrion tells Thorne that he's given the watchmen. Now go be happy, or he'll take a crab fork to the night once again. Also, please tell your Mormon and Jon Snow that Tyrion says hi. <laughs> Littlefinger and Varys join Tyrion as he walks out, and the eunuch master whispers compliments Tyrion on his sly tactics in appeasing Robb Stark with Ned's bones, taking away Cersei's protectors, and pretending to help the Night's Watch by sending more men while not seeming afraid of, quote, grumpkins and snarks. Littlefinger asks if Tyrion plans to send away all his guards, but Tyrion isn't sending away his guards. He's sending Cersei's guards away. When Littlefinger claims Cersei won't allow that, Tyrion says that, he, that she might. He means everything that he says. What about the lies, Littlefinger asks. Oh, Tyrion means the lies too. Why are you so sad, Littlefinger? I do not relish being played for a fool. And Marcella weds Tristane Martell. She could scarcely wed Robert Aaron Kenshi. Not without causing a great scandal, Tyrion admitted. I regret my little ruse, Lord Peter, but when we spoke, I could not know that the Dornishman would accept my offer. 
Littlefinger was not appeased. I do not like being lied to, my lord. Leave me out of your next deception. Only if you do the same for me, Tyrion thought, glancing at the dagger sheathed at Littlefinger's hip. If I have given offense, I am deeply, deeply sorry. All men know how much we love you, my lord, and how much we need you. Try and remember that. With that, Littlefinger left them. Yeah, goodbye, T Littlefinger. Get the fuck out. Tyrion asks Faris to walk with him, and as they walk, Faris tells Tyrion that Littlefinger is right about Cersei not wanting to send her guards away. But Tyrion has a plan for that. He'll need Varus to convince her that to convince her that it's the best plan. As it happens, it's all about Tyrion freeing Jamie. Ah, so the thief, poisoner, mummer, and murderer Tyrion had, Bronn searching for, had all been part of the scheme? Absolutely. Tyrion will just dress these criminals and mummer up in Lannister red cloaks, and they'll look like Lannisters. And if Cersei will feel uneasy at the prospect of losing a guardsman, so much the better. Tyrion likes her uneasy. Cleos leaves the city that afternoon, rejoining the Stark soldiers by the King's Gate, and Tyrion goes off in search of Timot and the burned men. He finds them in the barracks, and he orders them to assemble at a solar at midnight. Tyrion orders the clansmen not to be too, too drunk when they arrive. Shaga and the Stone Crows and Timot and the Moon Brothers arrive at midnight, and the party moves from the Tower of the Hand, essentially unseen. Tyrion was handed the king, and he did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. Next, we're at a door and axes are shattering the wood. Tyrion hears a woman gasping in fear and Tyrion and his boys roll into the room. They move over to the bed and rip the covers away, finding a naked serving girl under the sheets. She begs them not to hurt her and Tyrion tells her to go. They're not after her. Well, Shag is kind of after her. He wants to put a, quote, strong son in her, but Tyrion tells Shaga to let her be. Tyrion dragged the soft blanket off the bed, uncovering Grand Baster Pie cell beneath. Tell me, does the Citadel approve of you betting the serving wench's maester? Pycelle is naked and wants to know the meaning of all this. He's just so loyal and so very old. And a servant, ah, but are you, Pycelle? Tyrion says he knows that Pycelle informed Cersei about his plan to betroth Marcella to Tristane Martell, but Pycelle denies it. It wasn't him. It was a little figure. No, it was Varys. But Tyrion knows better. He only told Pycelle about his plan in those letters he wanted delivered to Doran Martell. But Pycelle only sent one raven. The other he gave to Cersei. Pycelle clutched for the corner of the blanket. P Birds are lost. Messages are stolen or sold. Varys, these are things I might tell you about the eunuch that would chill your blood. My lady prefers my blood hot. Make, make no mistake, for every secret the eunuch whispers in your ear, he holds seven back. And little finger that one. I know all about Lord Peter. He's almost as untrustworthy as you, Pycelle. Shaga, cut off his manhood and feed it to the goats. Shaga complains that there are no goats around, but Tyrion tells him to make do. So Shaga goes roaring forward and Pycelle shrieks and pisses himself. Shaga grabs Pycelle's beard and cuts two-thirds of it off with his axe. Tyrion asks Timot if a little torture will make Pycelle more forthcoming, and Timot says, yeah, Pycelle's scurred. Tyrion turns back to Pycelle and orders the rest of Pycelle to be, quote, shaved, but don't move too much, Pycelle, you could get yourself cut. Tyrion demands to know how long Pycelle has been spying for Cersei, but the Grand Maester starts sputtering about how he's a loyal Lannister dude, he loves Tywin, he even got Aerys II Targaryen to open the gates of King's Landing to him. That took Tyrion by surprise. He had been no more an ugly boy at Casterly Rock when the city fell. So... The sack of King's Landing was your work as well? For the realm. Once Rhaegar died, the war was done. Aerys was mad, Viserys too young, a Prince Aegon a babe at the press, but the realm needed a king. I prayed it should be your good father, but Robert was too strong, and Lord Stark moved too swiftly. Tyrion wonders how many people Pycelle betrayed. Aerys, Ned, Tyrion, Robert, Jon Arryn, Rhaegar? How many, dude? Pycelle claims he didn't kill Robert, which, yeah, Tyrion agrees with that, but he knows if the boar didn't get Robert, Pycelle would have finished the task. 
This leads Pycelle to call Robert a wretched, drink, drunk, vain, lecherous king, which, wow, sad to say, but Pycelle is right for once. Pycelle reports that Renly was trying to put Marjorie in Robert's bed to supplant Cersei, and John Aaron knew about... Yeah, yeah, Tyrion interrupts. He knows what John Aaron knew, but he doesn't want his clansmen to know, too. But Pycelle continues on about how Lysa was being sent back to the Eyrie and Sweet Robin was going to be fostered on Dragonstone. And now we get our first hints at the true conspiracy behind John Aaron's death. Tyrion accuses Pycelle of poisoning John Aaron, but Pycelle denies this, so Tyrion has Shaggis shave him closer. When Pycelle felt the blood trickling down his neck and onto his chest, the old man shuddered and the last strength went out of him. He looked shrunken, both smaller and frailer than he had been when they had burst on him. Yes, he whimpered. Yes, Coleman was, was purging, so I sent him away. The queen needed Lord Aaron dead. She, she did not say, so she could not. Varys was listening, always listening, but when I looked at her, I knew. It was not me who gave her the poison, though, I swear it. The old man wept. Varys will tell you. It was the boy, his squire. Hugh, he was called. He must have surely done it. Ask her, sister, ask her. Ugh. Disgusted, Tyrion orders Pycelle bound and thrown into the black cells as the Grand Maester is let out whimpering about doing it all for Lannister. When the Grand Maester was gone, Tyrion helps himself to a few more bottles of things that the, as ravens quirk overhead. He was really hoping that Pycelle was the one that he could trust, as he knows that Littlefinger and Vars are no less trustworthy. They were more dangerous in reality due to their subtlety. Perhaps his father's way would have been best. Summon Cyril in pain, mount three heads above the gates, and have it done. And wouldn't that be a pretty sight, he thought. And that is A Clash of Kings Tyrion 6. Boy, it feels like each successive Tyrion chapter that we're doing has George pressing the gas pedal down on the plot. But our last Tyrion chapter is doing masterful setup for King's Landing endgame material. This one is providing clues and context for events from stuff all the way back from Ned's investigation of John Aaron's murder in Game of Thrones. And I, I love it. What did you think about this chapter, Emmett? One of the primary pleasures of Tyrion's time as Hand, exemplified in this chapter, is how well George plays with information. Tyrion is constantly a step ahead of us, and Cersei, and Pycelle, and everyone else in this chapter. Just as we think we understand his plan, there's another twist, another bit of setup that he did beforehand, and we're just watching it all play out. And you just gotta stand back in awe at how deftly George is spinning all these plates in these Tyrion chapters. Here he's paying off slash further setting up so many things we've touched on in previous chapters. Tyrion and Cersei's dysfunctional relationship, Renly and Stannis' dysfunctional relationship, how Tyrion manages his public persona, how he manages the small council, and how all the political maneuvering of the Game of Thrones fits in context with the coming apocalypse. It's all here, all well done. It's just another Tyrion chapter that feels like a full meal. Yeah, it really does feel like a full meal of a chapter, but kind of like halfway through this chapter after Tyrion has ensured the Westeros will remain mostly ignorant of the threat of the apocalypse, as we're going to talk about extensively towards the end of this episode, my stomach just kind of started churning a little bit. I mean, we've talked about how Tyrion is better able to negotiate the halls of power and the dangers associated with being the Hand of the King than Ned Stark, but I couldn't help but be reminded of Eddard 11, Ned's 11th chapter in A Game of Thrones, and the one time that Ned uncomfortably sits the Iron Throne. I mean, there's, I feel like there's a lot of intentional parallels that George imbues into both those chapters. It's the one time that both hands of the king will sit the Iron Throne. Both hands send their own, in quotation marks, into the Riverlands. And then there's the Iron Throne itself. I mean, there's a real similarity in the language that they use in describing the chair. Here's, here's Ned describing it back from A Game of Thrones editor 11. He sat high upon the immense ancient seat of Aegon the Conqueror, an ironwork monstrosity of spikes and jagged edges and grotesquely twisted metal. Now here's Tyrion's impression. The Iron Throne of Aegon the Conqueror was a tangle of nasty barbs and jagged metal teeth waiting for any fool who tried to sit too comfortably. 
Also, there's a bit of contrast here, too, in how they both regard their unique places in sitting the throne. You know, Ned finds it, quote, hellishly uncomfortable, as he describes in that chapter, while Tyrion really enjoys how high it is and how he can look down at everyone. And most importantly, the contrast is in what Ned and Tyrion do from the Iron Throne. I mean, for all the criticisms that we leveled onto Ned for his failure to properly utilize the power of his position... Ned tried to issue out justice from the Iron Throne. He makes it explicit in his thoughts as he's sitting on the throne. And he's doing this on behalf of the small folk that have been savaged by Gregor Clegane and his Lannister Reavers. Tyrion, in opposition, will use his power to subvert Westeros' norms and keep Westeros ignorant of the apocalypse for short-term political advantage. And the seeds for Tyrion's unethical conduct on the Iron Throne are planted in Tyrion poisoning Cersei at the start of this chapter. Yes, as with Tyrion 1, we begin with Tyrion outside his sister's door, with a Kingsguard in the way. But while Mandon Moore put up a notable struggle in Tyrion 1, Meryn Trant pretty quickly stands aside for Tyrion, making his displeasure known only through the tone of his voice. It's a great way of capturing how things have and haven't changed for Tyrion over the course of A Clash of Kings so far. He has established his authority in ways large and small. Everyone knows he's taken charge of Team Lannister in the capital. But they don't like it. And neither Meryn nor Lancel seem afraid to demonstrate that they don't like it, which bodes ill for Tyrion when he falls from power in a storm of swords. So we have Tyrion entering on a room full of song to find a scene straight out of the songs. Like, this could be a stained glass window. The queen with the light shining off her, the handsome knight serenading her. Tyrion throws this all off visually when he walks in, like Brienne did in Catelyn too. And we see this emphasized when Cersei talks about the protesters as lice- and Tyrion's clansmen as pets. She's always talking about filth and disgust and bad smells. Cersei despises anyone, especially poor people, who don't live up to the beautiful image she and Lancel are presenting in this scene. And, you know, there's the argument that inequalities in social structures are maintained in part by visceral disgust from those above toward those below, that exists in our real world. Like the, the recent movie Parasite from last year that everyone loved. The, the climax of the, the movie-long struggle between a rich family and a poor family is motivated by just this disgusted sniff that one character can't hold <laughs> back. Or you can look at, you know, the evidence suggesting repulsion is a significant motivator for some conservative voters. Just the, the, the idea of the other is a strong motivator for a lot of people. And for Cersei, Tyrion is a constant reminder of this distressing filth constantly threatening to overtake her beautiful golden world, which of course it finally does with the sparrows on the walk. This is enhanced by the company Tyrion keeps. Savages and sellswords, sex workers... So instead, we find Cersei hooking up with her substitute, Jamie Lancel, who is willing to keep up the image as long as he can get laid. But she's not just hooking up with Jamie Light. She's using him. Keep in mind that Lancel is 16 years old and Cersei is in her mid-30s at this point. Lancel is also singing for Cersei, being put in the same place as with the piper and the harpist. It's Cersei communicating that Lancel is only here to serve. He's a mere servant to the real Lancers of the realm. And first, it's Cersei, as we've seen in the first six Tyrion chapters in A Clash of Kings that he's serving. Then Lancel becomes a servant of Tyrion, come Tyrion 7 to the close of A Clash of Kings. Lancel Lannister is, is a pawn for all of these greater Lannisters in quotation marks. And Tyrion is going to think really coldly that he wonders who's going to kill this boy come whenever Jaime comes home. Whether it's going to be Cersei who's going to off him first or whether it's going to be Jaime who does the deed when he, when he arrives back in King's Landing. It's really cold and these two elder Lancers who should be mentoring and sheltering this kid are just using this kid for their own short-term advantage. 
Exactly. We have to stress not only that the Lannisters' attitude towards those below them is hateful and dehumanizing, but even the image they maintain among their peers is bullshit. Cersei's beauty is skin-deep, and so is Lancel's. He's not an honorable knight in service to his chaste queen. They're fucking in the bed of the king they killed. <laughs> They're completely unworthy of the songs they are insisting they exemplify. And Tyrion, too, over the course of his story, gets farther and farther away from the seasons of love, preferring the seasons of hate, in part because of how Cersei treats him. Like, this opening scene to the chapter feels to me like Lannister dysfunction in microcosm. The way that... Cersei is putting Lancel through like Jamie cosplay and treating him as a servant. Hmm. It's so representative of how this house collapses in on itself over the course of the series. So after Tyrion kicks out Lancel and his backup band, he drops the bomb regarding the Baratheons, the first of many times in the chapter he's ahead of both other characters and the reader. We learned in Catelyn 2 that Stannis had laid siege to Storm's End, but now we learn that Renly is riding to meet him in response. And just imagine the sheer weight lifting from Lannister's shoulders at this news. They've been worried about Stannis since before the series even started, and Renly became a serious potential thorn in their side when Cersei let him escape at the end of Book 1. Even though their actual military losses and political humiliation so far have come at the hands of the Starks and Tullys, every powerful Lannister has made clear that they consider the Baratheon brothers to be the existential threat. They see Rob, like they will see the Greyjoys later on, as an annoyance, a distraction, a parochial warlord with delusions of grandeur who will eventually run out of luck. Rob doesn't even want the Iron Throne. Renly does, and he has a gigantic army. Stannis does, and he's close by with his military record and famous lack of mercy. Everything Tyrion has done so far in this book has taken place under the shadow of the crowned stag, the certainty that both Stannis and Renly are coming for Robert's throne. And now, instead... They've come for each other. The twin existential threats are canceling each other out. The battle to take place between them on the doorstep of their childhood home, the Baratheon Castle, rather than against the Lannisters at King's Landing. Now, of course, as rereaders, we know that there will be no battle, that Tyrion's joy will soon turn to ashes in his mouth, that Stannis will soon threaten the Lannisters and the city alike with a large force. And as we will see in Catelyn 3, Stannis has a logistical argument, not just a self-serving one, for going after Renly instead of Joffrey. And Renly now has a strong political incentive to respond immediately to an attack on his home castle. Still, in spite of all that, George frames this revelation in such a way as to emphasize how galling it is <laughs> that the Baratheons wound up fighting each other instead of the family that corrupted, betrayed, and finally killed their big brother. George just sits us down and makes us watch the villains cackle <laughs> with glee at the folly of their foes. Cersei and Tyrion are so hideously happy that they're getting away with this, that they have received a like divine reprieve from consequences of their actions. Oh, absolutely. And while, you know, you could see this as a reprieve, that the Lancers are receiving a reprieve from Stannis and or Renly being at the gates, it does far more damage to the Baratheon cause that both of these brothers are at at loggerheads. Yeah, both reasons, both sides have reasons to go to Storm's End, as you were talking about. But that delay in the Siege of King's Landing buys Tyrion just enough time to get his chain long enough to stretch across the mouth of the Blackwater Bay. And, the, and that delay gives the Pyromancers just enough time to produce enough wildfire to turn Blackwater Bay into a green hell. You know, much as George really starts thumbing the scale against Ned Stark in the middle parts of A Game of Thrones, and then he starts to really thumb the 
scale against Rob Stark towards the end of A Clash of Kings, the first few books. He's doing similarly for Stannis here in A Clash of Kings, making the timing just right to ensure that Stannis will ultimately fail in his quest to claim the Iron Throne and take King's Landing. It's that timing and structure that George is just so good at, and that is the real advantage in having these tightly paced, really well-structured books like A Clash of Kings, and that all of the dominoes have to fall in just the right order to ensure that the end is the one that George envisions. The structure is so strong, not only with those overall narrative arcs, but just with the character dynamics. Like, what a beautiful, terrible structure this is, that Tyrion and Cersei, the most dysfunctional of siblings who have despised each other since childhood and who are committed, as of the end of A Dance with Dragons, to killing each other, they finally come together. They finally have a moment of connection over another dysfunctional sibling dynamic. They laugh, they hug, they share what seems like genuine intimacy for what may be the first time, and it's all because the Stannis-Renly sibling relationship has completely busted apart and will now inevitably end in blood. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, after all, and here we see the winner-take-all structure of a feudal civil war laid bare in family terms. The Lannisters can only be happy together if the Baratheons are not. And so, of course, Cersei's primary concern in the face of this news is that Stannis and Renly may be able to kindle a familial bond and come for their common foe, as they should be doing. She asks Tyrion, Do you think it will truly come to battle between them? If they should come to some accord, Tyrion reassures her that this is unlikely. With the line that I keep repeating in these Clash of Kings chapters because it so perfectly sums up what's happening between the Baratheon bros. They are too different and yet too much alike, and neither could ever stomach the other. That's the problem. If Stannis and Renly were identical, they might still be fighting for the same spot, but they would get along better and might be able to come to a personal arrangement. If Stannis and Renly were total opposites, they'd probably hate each other, but they'd also probably have different goals and so not come into too much direct conflict. But because they are opposites on the surface and the same underneath, they are destined to try and kill one another. Renly is flowers, sunshine, spring and summer, the cheers of the crowd, and a cheerful shirking of one's duty. Stannis is stone, torchlight, autumn and winter, silent dinners, and an obsession with doing his duty. <laughs> one is associated with a fairy tale castle covered in roses, one is associated with a volcano covered in gargoyles. Yet underneath these radically different aesthetics, Renly and Stannis are both larger-than-life personalities who inspire fervent devotion in their followers. They're both stubborn as hell, and both want to be the center of attention at all times. Ironically, Tyrion could also be describing himself and Cersei, opposites on the surface, as I was saying earlier, but both driven by paranoia, alienation, an instinct for corrupt bullying, and a desperate desire for daddy's approval. What George is getting at here, I think, is the difference between yin and yang versus oil and water. Like, sometimes this combination of same yet different attracts, and sometimes it repels. Like, think of the sitcom Odd Couple. <laughs> Friends who are opposite on the surface, but the same underneath. Is that a recipe for success? Yeah, sometimes, but it's also <laughs> potentially a recipe for failure. And this tension between resolution and dissolution reflects back on the individual mind, always caught between public and private, child and adult, fear and desire. So many philosophies and ideologies and organizations are about aiming for a holistic reconciliation, finding the same inside the different. Stannis and Renly, as I've argued before, can be seen as externalizations of the two halves of Robert's psyche, unleashed and dueling in the wake of his death. And George further develops this theme by having Cersei talk about the Baratheon backstory, about how Robert, in effect, chose his Renly half over his Stannis half. 
So now we're seeing this narrative where Renly was already advanced in the succession once by the brother he resembled, the brother who never gave Stannis the love he so longed for. And that just adds another perfect layer to the massive insult Stannis is feeling from Renly now. It's young Robert breaking the rules and screwing me over yet again. Right. Now that Renly's broken the rules, Stannis can break the rules too and besiege... Storm's End, his family's ancestral castle. I mean, the Lannisters put a product of incest on the Iron Throne, passed him off as Robert's true son, and now Renly is jumping to the line of succession after he was given Storm's End instead of me because he can. I mean, everyone is being rewarded for not following the rules. Fuck it. Stannis can break norms and attack Storm's End too. The castle he once starved for a year to hold rather than surrender. I mean, the problem for Stannis is that he doesn't know or knows and doesn't care about how bad the optics of taking Storm's End are for him. I mean, sure, he's got the logical reason reason to besiege Storm's End as he tells Catelyn in her next chapter, to take the city, I must needs the power of these southern lords I see across the field. My brother has them, I must needs take them from him. Just always, just like the these like short little sentences that stand very just direct so great. And to the point yeah. here's the math problem i'm solving right exactly it's beautiful it's brilliant it's, it's a great way that george writes him but to attack storms and his own castle not only undercuts renly but himself too in the eyes of both the nobles the lords the knights as well as the small folk and the people and that's to say nothing of the possibility that the baratheon brothers will slaughter each other rather than fight the lannisters on the field of battle Again, we're going to talk more about this come Catelyn 3, but this is more of Stannis subsuming his own Baratheon identity, identity, exposing the defunction of his own house, the one that he has fought for his entire life and showing the world that he's kind of rejecting it while also still trying to hold to some of the vestiges of power associated with it. It's really interesting writing on George's part that he has these different aspects kind of take center stage in terms of how we evaluate Stannis Baratheon. We've gone a lot of distance from the prologue of A Clash of Kings to where they are right now. And I think it's wonderful. And we're not even, we've been with Stannis in just two chapters and we're 25 chapters in A Clash and we're already just, already just really unraveling who this guy is deep down inside. It's great. So well said, and we're going to see the moment that exemplifies that in Catalan 3 when Renly asks, what banner is that you're flying, brother? And he just replies, mine own. And that sums, <laughs> sums it all up. And all this Baratheon dysfunction is what pries open the possibility of the Lannister regime's survival. And so Tyrion and Cersei drink an ironic toast to brotherly love. And I just adore how George frames this, bringing Tyrion and Cersei together over Stannis and Renly coming apart and then showing us that this bond won't last either. Because Tyrion takes advantage of Cersei's vulnerability, the fact that they are as close as they've ever been, to poison her as part of a power play to dismiss her guards. Now, as we were talking about earlier with the question, Tyrion could have killed Cersei here if he felt like it, and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. He's not outwardly making war on his family, as he will at the end of A Storm of Swords and on into A Dance with Dragons and presumably The Winds of Winter. But it does wrap up the theme of dysfunctional family relationships perfectly by showing us how there really is no refuge to be found for all these alienated squabbling souls. Even when they come together, it's just for a second before they're busted back apart. And Tyrion poisons her not only as part of a pre-existing plan, you know, to take away her guards later in the chapter, but also to bolster his own reputation, his own self-image, different from but just as fragile as Cersei's in that kind of chilling line in retrospect, harmless when I'm alone, am I? Right. I mean, can you imagine this from Cersei's perspective? I mean, last week you brought up the excellent point about imagining Theon's second chapter from Ash's point of view. This week I'm thinking a little bit more about how someone like Cersei might have regarded Tyrion in that moment. I mean, she doesn't know that Tyrion poisons her. But, you know, think about things like how George had wrote, written all of Tyrion's A Storm of Swords chapters during the time that of writing A Clash of Kings. And we know that George is planting seeds for the accusation that Tyrion was behind Joffrey's poisoning. I think we can start to source some of that back to this chapter. Tyrion's status as a point of view sometimes works to obscure his 
villainy. I mean, especially in the Clash of Kings. I mean, we, this, I feel like it's a point of key emphasizing every single Tyrion chap, Clash of Kings chapters, but it's just worth reemphasizing over and over again. And let's think about the poisoning of Joffrey in that light. I mean, he's got the means to poison Joffrey, as Pycelle will report at Tyrion's trial. He's got the motive in wanting to kill Joffrey, as he loudly announces before the court. And he's got the opportunity as Joffrey's cupbearer, and also the opportunity, too, in taking poisons, additional poisons, out of Pycelle's chambers after he took some poisons out of his chambers back in Tyrion IV. You know, of course, Tyrion isn't the one who actually poisons Joffrey, but you can see in this chapter how he becomes a likely suspect, kind of similar to how Tyrion becomes a likely suspect behind the cat's ball back in A Game of Thrones and of trying to send someone after Bran Stark. Tyrion uses poison he filched from, from Pycelle's chambers back in Tyrion IV, like I was saying, against Cersei here. He needs her out of the way to achieve short-term and long-term, well, not even long-term, short-term and some mid-term political advantage. And that's really what's going to dominate what happens with Tyrion throughout A Clash of Kings, but it also shows us what happens when Tyrion is going to prioritize short-term and mid-term political advantage as he enters into the court and sits the Iron Throne for the first, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, only time in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, you say that so well. George has to like build in evidence against an innocent person. You know what I mean? Right. He has to build yeah. in stuff that makes it look like Tyrion's guilty, even though he's not, because he wants to make the exactly the point you're making, that from the outside, Tyrion looks guilty as hell. We only know better because he's a POV and we have access to his thoughts, which no one else does. And then, yes, we get the court scene in this chapter. For the first time in A Clash of Kings, we behold the object of all of this struggle, the Iron Throne. And ironically, as in its first appearance in the Game of Thrones that you were talking about so well earlier, we're not seeing it sat by an actual king, but by their hand. And in both cases, they're going well beyond what the actual king would want them to do. So we are seeing the Iron Throne not just as a passive symbol of power, but as a lens on power, a way of refracting power, a way of enhancing your own power. And that's reflected in Tyrion's thoughts on it. As with everyone from Ned to Stannis, Tyrion points out that the throne is an ugly, stinking heap of ugliness. <laughs> but that doesn't change his desire for it, because the throne is high and allows Tyrion's voice to ring out commandingly down the length of the hall. And these are, of course, proxies for the respect and humanity that he has always been denied by a world that quite literally looks down on him. Here we're seeing in microcosm the lure of power. Power makes you bigger than yourself. It wipes away all your insecurities. Or does it? In truth, this is an illusion. It just makes your insecurities bigger than ever. The, the glorious feeling quickly fades, after which you grasp for more and more just to get that feeling back. Power is addictive in a way. It's not just that powerful is addictive, it's it's fun for Tyrion. I mean, I, I've, I've did this before, but I have to do it again about how Tyrion and Ned reflect and evaluate, reflect on and evaluate the Iron Throne. And we have this line from Tyrion's chapter, which is, is such a small line, but I think it speaks volumes. Tyrion plucked at one of the twisted barbs that sprang from the arm of the throne. Meanwhile, Ned from A Game of Thrones, Edward 11. Ned could feel cold steel against his fingers as he leaned forward. Between each finger was a blade, the points of twisted swords fanning out like talons from arms of the throne. Even after three centuries, some were still sharp enough to cut. The Iron Throne was full of traps for the unwary. Yeah, well, it was full of traps for, for Ned Stark, unfortunately. Come the end of A Game of Thrones, so, so sad. Oh, R.I.P. Ned. Tyrion, though, is seeing the throne as a means of compensating for his dwarfism and plucking at a, quote, twisted blade gives me the impression of kind of play and instrument, right? He plucking, you know, the harp as was happening with Lancel Lannister at the beginning of this chapter. For Ned, it's all a hidden dangers, the swords through the fingers. And Ned is going to mistrust that power and sees the dangers and knows those dangers specifically because his father and brother died in agony before this chair. In contrast, I mean, Tyrion is cultivating that power, using the Iron Throne as an instrument from which he can play a careful, cynical tone, tune. 
Oh, I love that comparison. That's so perfect. And yeah, could, is there any more like perfect villain image than like plucking a sword that's coming out of your right? chair? Like you may as well be sucking blood off of it at that point. Seriously. <laughs> and yeah, you were thinking about it as playing an instrument. I was picturing it like not to, you know, give the people who say A Song of Ice and Fire is sci-fi any more credit. But I was thinking about it like uh, like like the captain stir on the Enterprise or something like he's, mm. he's playing with like, you know, the intercom or something else that comes up on, the, on like the side of sci-fi chairs. It's just a perfect image of Tyrion. Anyway, on to specifics. Once more, we see, as you said in your synopsis, Cleos Frey as a hapless ragdoll being tossed back and forth between the warring halls of power, neither of which have any concern for him. Cleos is starting to lose his hair from the stress, and as he points out, Rob will never accept these terms anyway, which Tyrion confirms in his thoughts. He never expected Rob to. Because while Rob's offer was sent in good faith, Tyrion is using his response as a cover to break Jaime out, in violation of custom. Everything Tyrion declares publicly in his loud, ringing Iron Throne voice needs to be seen through this lens, because it transforms everything in his counterproposal into mockery and deceit. When Tyrion demands that Rob free Jaime to lead his host against the Baratheons, it is with the expectation that this will not be necessary because Jaime will already be free. When Tyrion says that Rob will have to trade Jaime if he wants his sisters back, it is with the expectation that this will be impossible for Rob because Jaime will already be freed. And there's another layer to that dishonesty, in that, as Tyrion admits, but only to himself, he doesn't have Arya and couldn't make this trade anyway. Underneath all this, Tyrion feels a stab of sympathy towards Sansa, as well he should. But that doesn't change his behavior, nor its potential impact. Here we see how the Lannisters' narrow definition of family interest works to break down trust with others, guaranteeing the continuation of hate and conflict. Again, it's these dysfunctional families working out their rage at each other on the country. Speaking of which, Tyrion then goes for what he calls the thrust, dispatching the entirety of the Red Cloaks with Cleos, stripping Cersei of her protectors. As Varys says, I think speaking for George, you got to admire Tyrion's sheer <laughs> political skills here. Like, he is squeezing this kind of dry diplomatic back and forth for every possible advantage. By sending the Red Cloaks, he ensures not only that he keeps a numerical advantage over Cersei, but that the men sent to free Jaime can stroll into Riverrun under a peace banner, hiding in plain sight among their fellows. And this is all done in the guise of protecting Cleos, even while Tyrion has made plain that he doesn't actually care about his cousin's well-being. Mm-hmm. Vilar, as Tyrion said earlier in the book, knows what side of the Lannister bread he's buttered, and it's left to Pycelle to speak for the previous balance of power. And Tyrion just brushes the Grand Maester off without a second thought, setting up his domination of their confrontation later in the chapter. So violating political norms, yeah, this is a big part of A Clash of Kings. It's becoming routine under the Lannister regime in King's Landing, much as violating military retor- military norms is becoming routine in the Riverlands by Tywin Lannisters. We're going to find out horrifically next week in Arya 6. Oh, great. Always great how George parallels these two Arya and Tyrion's chapters in A Clash of Kings is excellent. As we talked about in Tyrion 5, Tyrion isn't reaching back to Rob in good faith, but he's taking it a step even farther than simply not acting in good faith. Recall in that Tyrion chapter that Tyrion's original intent was to have Cleos Frey, quote, wear out his bony Frey rump, riding back and forth from River Run to King's Landing while Sir Stafford Lannister raced an army in the West. But now Tyrion decided, fuck it, let's free Jamie. Yeah, we can do that. Sure, no problem. I mean, from a pure political sense, it seems the smarter cynical play was the one that Tyrion was articulating back in Tyrion 5, you know, get the Starks to stay put at River Run, thinking that peace is real while Stafford's army prepares for war out in the West and then joins with Tywin in besieging River Run. You know, 
Of course, Tyrion doesn't know that Rob is already on the march to the west, but this is Tyrion having that brash, damn the consequences, under the surface similarity to Jamie, like you were saying about Cersei and Tyrion, right? They the, seem so different on the surface, but underneath they're very, very similar. But the long-term consequences, though, of sending men to free Jamie is that Tyrion is ensuring that no one is going to want to negotiate with the Lannisters in good faith ever again, at least for a long time. I mean, there's a reason why Brynn Tully keeps the Stark banner flying high over Rerun a year or so after the Red Wedding. He can't trust the phrase and Lannisters won't butcher his men and break the terms of surrender he might make with them. And while a large part of that can be traced directly to the Red Wedding, I, I want to say the DNA of Lannister treachery extends farther back from the Red Wedding of Storm of Swords. It extends back to here, like using a peace party as a cover for a commander raid into river run and all of this was such was and all of this was for such short-term gain i mean jamie's that great of a commander my god ah. <laughs> and even as Tyrion picks up these short-term gains he's laying the groundwork for his later fall cersei is not going to forget about this nor will the tullies as we're going to see in catalan 5 nor will littlefinger who is openly pissed about being caught up in Tyrion's deceptions here and on one hand, it is hilarious to watch Littlefinger come all unruffled when it turns out he's not the smartest man in the room after all. He cannot deal with it, and that is great to watch. On the other, Tyrion is racking up quite the enemies list here. And all of this comes together with the question of Alistair Thorne and his rotted hand. It is easy for the reader to have forgotten him, along with Tyrion at this point. Mm-hmm. But of course, he's bearing the most important news imaginable. The end of the world is coming, and Tyrion sits the Iron Throne. Gondor calls for raid! Not only Westeros, but A Song of Ice and Fire itself hangs in the balance. The entire story changes if Tyrion takes Alistair seriously. And George writes this so well. In the silence after Alistair's apocalyptic warning, the silence of the long night, you can imagine, Tyrion hears a snigger. And that guides his entire response, because like Tywin, what Tyrion fears most is laughter, although father and son come at mockery from opposite angles. Tywin isn't directly laughed at. It's the laughter aimed at his father he fears returning and always seeks to preemptively silence. Tyrion, by contrast, deals with mockery, direct and indirectly, all the time, and so reacts to it even more instinctively. He fears that anonymous laugh far more than he fears the White Walkers. Tyrion is a paranoid skeptic, so his first assumption is not that magic is real after all, nor that Alistair has just snapped, but that someone put him up to this, to damage Tyrion. That's Tyrion's first reaction here. So he, he reacts in such a way as to preserve his reputation above all. And in the process, narrowly misses the chance to save the world. Now, realistically, you could argue that there's not much Tyrion could actually do. He lacks a real army, and none of the people who have real armies care about his opinion or take the White Walkers seriously, since Melisandre hasn't told Stannis about them yet. And what makes Tyrion different from Tywin is that he does still try to help out the Night's Watch in a more limited way, due to his affection for Elsie Mormont. Mormont himself is trying his best here, like he knows he has to send a nobleman he doesn't have that many to choose from, and he doesn't know that Tyrion's in charge at this point. Still, he shouldn't have sent such an ass. <laughs> the nasty dynamic between Tyrion and Alistair turns out to affect millions. You know, Tyrion feels like this vague affinity for the Watch in the same way he feels a stab of sympathy for Sansa. Like, these are signals that Tyrion has better angels than Tywin or Cersei, but also that he's burying them at the moment. Do you think that's fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. I think we were looking at Tyrion and saying that he's attempting to gain a short-term advantage in using the mockery that would be aimed at him and directing that to- towards Sir Alistair Thorne. It's interesting when you look back at 
Elsie Mormont's decision back in a Game of Thrones to send to send Sir Alistair Thorne to King's Landing, you can also kind of see that that's kind of a short-term advantage of getting Sir Alistair Thorne away from Jon Snow, so Jon doesn't kill the motherfucking shit out of Sir Alistair after after events from a Game of Thrones, Jon Seven. And what ends up happening is that the short-term advantage is gained, but the long-term disadvantage is also gained at the same time. Alistair is not going to convince anyone of the truth of his matter, and of course that's aided by Tyrion, of course, keeping specifically keeping Sir Alistair Thorne uh, away in the Martians so that he doesn't have to deal with him and so that the hand rots away so he doesn't have any evidence of the dead actually walking. But yeah, I think you make fantastic points here about how Tyrion is so afraid of being laughed at that he's willing to just kind of shrug off the end of the world. and. That's going to have some major consequences. No, not today, not tomorrow, but definitely a year, two, three years from now, it definitely is going to have consequences. So that's how Tyrion uses his power in public. In the final scene of the chapter, we see how he uses it in private as he follows up on the one, two, three gambit from Tyrion 4. And I love how George paces this. We got that threefold gambit in Tyrion 4. We get Cersei responding to the news of Marcella's betrothal to Tristane Martell in Tyrion 5. And now here in Tyrion 6, Pycelle pays the price for snitching. So much of this chapter is about Tyrion fully unleashing his power after steadily building it up in his first five chapters in The Clash of Kings. This is one more blow to Cersei's power, the uprooting of her loyal mole on the small council, an ironic reversal of how she threw the street preachers into jail earlier in the chapter. It's also just a great flip side to the chapter's opening scene. In both cases, Tyrion enters the room, but he enters with his quote-unquote pets this time, and he interrupts a sex scene in progress instead of a seduction. And Pycelle, of course, does not fit the image Cersei and Lancel were preserving. He's not exactly uh, sexually impressive, and he's betraying his (laughs) vows as he has so many times before. And Pycelle is just like the dictionary definition of a rat in this scene, squealing and squirming to get around the obvious truth that he sold out the hand of the king. After so many delicate thrusts throughout the chapter, here Tyrion goes for the bone, literally shaving the naked old man in front of him as he wrings him dry for information. And there's a sense of like, yeah, this is what power looks like behind closed doors when it's not, you know, pretty in performance in front of the crowd. This is what it actually looks like to be in charge. And yet on reread, it's striking how little Tyrion actually gains from this interrogation. Like the revelation about Eris is interesting, but it doesn't further any of Tyrion's goals. Pycelle, it turns out, wasn't really in the inner circle for Robert's death, and he doesn't know the truth about John Aaron. So if you stand back, it's like Tyrion is using his hard power. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do. But what does he actually get out of this? Uh, he's not getting anything really from this conversation. I mean, he already knows that Pycelle has betrayed him, and now he's just acting out on that betrayal, and he's pulling next to nothing from Pycelle that's going to be of interest to him. But it's of interest to us as readers. You mentioned earlier that Tyrion is ahead of the characters most of the time, and the readers throughout this chapter, and in all the previous and successive Tyrion chapters, but not here. I mean, the revelation that Pycelle and Cersei weren't directly behind John Aaron's murder feels like George is asking readers to really start wondering that who was truly behind that murder. Remember back in Eddard 12 from A Game of Thrones how Cersei denied the murder and readers dismiss Cersei's dis- and readers dismiss Cersei's denial. She's a liar and a Lannister to boot, but now Pycelle adds kind of a degree of credibility to Cersei's denial from A Game of Thrones. No, they didn't poison John Aaron. All Pycelle did was ensure that John Aaron didn't recover from his poisoning at Cersei's silent urging. And it's also worth noting here that Pycelle isn't a complete idiot in not going up to Cersei and asking what she truly wants. He at least has the wherewithal to know that Varys was listening, and whether Pycelle was interpreting Cersei's signals correctly is sort of up in the air, but 
I think he was interpreting correctly, honestly. I think it's a great ending to this chapter. You have all this furious activity of Tyrion, you know, scrabbling to stay on top. And then there's this sense of, like, deflating and ennui that sets in at the end. Because as Tyrion says, Pycelle was the most trustworthy of the three counselors that he's been <laughs> investigating. And also the least dangerous. So how much has he really gained here? And while I generally lack sympathy for Pycelle, because he's just a venal individual in every possible way... There is something haunting about how he wretchedly sobs out the name of Lannister as he's dragged to his cell in this ordeal from which he'll never really recover. It's not even House Lannister or the Lannisters. It's Lannister, singular, an idea, a golden standard that Pycelle worships, his ideal of political power by which he has now been humiliated and betrayed. And just as Tyrion's diagnosis of Renly and Stannis also applied to himself and Cersei— so Pycelle's history of, pulling, of putting it all on the line for a family that will happily dispose of him. And that reflects how hard Tyrion is working in A Clash of Kings to keep in power a family that will never love him back. And Tyrion just passes all of that on to Cleos Frey. As he will say in A Storm of Swords, they're all just puppets on strings, back and back and back. Right, dancing to the tune of violence, ultimately. And that's all of the advantages that Tyrion has getting in the war against the Baratheons are not coming because of things that Tyrion is doing in this chapter. They're all coming because of events coming outside of his grasp, outside of his ability to influence. All the moves he's making are against people who are supporting House Lannister. And I think when we're looking at, you know, Song of Ice and Fire, we're looking at Tyrion Lannister, that is the arc right there is that Tyrion is externalizing his enemies he looks at out the, out the he looks at them out on the horizon sees that they're all fighting each other and thinks all oh, well and good but inside the only people that he's actually fighting are his sister and his father's loyal toady I love what you said that's exactly the structure of Tyrion in terms of the the enemies without and then within both within his family and you know within his own soul so moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork the reason why Tyrion knows the I love to made his fair summer with sunlight in her hair song, of course, is because Tysha sang that song to Tyrion during their doomed short-lived marriage. And this is just George keeping Tyrion and Tysha in your mind for when that revelation drops at the end of A Storm of Swords. Because that image in his head is the one time he was happy, the one time he felt secure. It's his version of the songs and stories that many characters in A Song of Ice and Fire believe in. And it, it has to be kept in mind because that's you have to understand how devastating it is for Tyrion when it completely falls apart, along with any chance to love his family or have them love him. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that song in, in relation to a character like Robert Baratheon, who had the same sort of mentality of always looking back at his youth and having that idealized mm. version of things going so well for him back when he was fighting in Robert's Rebellion, fighting for what he thought was Lyanna, but whatever. Um, but at the same time, that's also for Tyrion. That's his moment, his idealized history, his, the moment he looks back on and sees yeah, as... That's great. The past you project yourself into constantly. You're right. It's the same. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, I don't know about you, but there are certain songs where I'll, I'll listen to them and I'll, it'll be years since I've heard them and I'll be like brought back to like the moment when I was 17 or 22 or 27 or something like that. And, you know, there's there's a real sense of nostalgia in those songs, but there's also a real sense of sadness, too. And those are parts of my youth that I can't bring back. And those are parts for Tyrion's youth that he can never, ever bring back either. Well put, sir. That's, that's I think, really relevant. We're just coming off Catalan 2 with the Summer Nights singing Songs of Glory right before they rush into the Maw of Battle. So I think that's a great point. All right, second little bit of foreshadowing. Lance's late night presence singing to Cersei is another set of clues, or another clue and a rather a long set of clues that Tyrion will piece together in determining that Cersei and Lance are lovers. This is all going to culminate in our next Tyrion chapter when Tyrion out and out reveals that he knows Lance's secret 
and then utilizes that secret to cynically manipulate Lancel into becoming Tyrion's spy in Cersei's inner circle. Again, Lancel, as we've talked about at the beginning of this episode, is really one of the uh, the victims of this this of this story, and especially a victim of his own house, which is again sad. And again, all we also have to remember that he's 16 years old. Guys, come on, stop fucking with Lancel Lannister. God, he's going to really go through the ringer come to the Blackwater and come afterwards. I'll talk about this more when we get to Tyrion 7, but part of me thinks that scene where uh, Tyrion reveals that he knows and then manipulates Lancel further, part of me feels like, oh, is this like a version of Tywin that finds out the truth about Cersei hmm. and Jaime having sex because Lancel is the Jaime stand-in and is it, like Tyrion is a version of Tywin who wouldn't care and would just like, you know, use it in his own manipulations. <laughs> but yeah, again, it's like the the Lannisters, the, the call is coming from the inside of the house. All the swords are aimed at each other. <laughs> it's all ready to come down. Another little bit of uh, interesting detail woven into this chapter is we have these street prophets mentioned earlier on, preaching not only against the Lannisters, but saying that the Targaryens are the true monarchs. And this suggests, this is one of a, a lot of pieces of evidence, I think, that suggests the Sparrow movement will end up backing Young Grift in the end. Now, I don't <laughs> think the, the Sparrow movement is really fully in George's head at this point, and we're only seeing the seeds for Young Griff. But I do think he always had in mind the idea that vaguely the people slash the faith of the seven are going to ultimately support a Targaryen restoration over the Lannisters. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. And I think we're going to see it in the next Arya chapter where, you know, the one small folk guy is talking and she's like, oh, if this would never have happened if the if the old king had been around, then Arya's like, Robert? And he's like, no, good King Aerys. And you're like, wait, what? But at the same time, I think it is speaking to what you're talking about in that the the small folk are looking almost similar to Tyrion as of that uh, seasons of, of love, so to speak, in terms of their own lives, where they thought that things were so much better back in 280 AC, I guess, when Aerys was burning people to death. I guess he wasn't burning a lot of small folk at the time, so I guess they're just... Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, and mean, we'll get into that when we talk about that moment in Arya 6, because, uh, yeah, that is that is great stuff. But yeah, I think, I think already you can see George working in this idea that, yeah, the the people en masse, to the extent that they really show up in A Song of Ice and Fire, are going are gonna to back young Griff when he lands. Yeah, that's going to be to Daenerys' detriment, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So... And uh, this is one that I picked up very late in doing the research for this one. A deeply ironic and hilarious twist. Cersei will accuse Grand Maester Pycelle of allowing Robert Baratheon and John Aaron to die after Pycelle is unable to save Lord Giles Rosby in a feast for crows. And it's this great line where Cersei is yelling at Pycelle and she says, Robert was as strong as any man of the Seven Kingdoms, yet you lost him to a boar. Oh, and let us not forget John Aaron. No doubt you would have killed Ned Stark as well if I had let you keep him longer. It's just it's like ridiculous. We we talk about like the all the sort. You talked about how all the swords are pointed at each other, but Cersei is takes it to a whole another level of just a, like parody in 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 the sense like she wants this guy to die, and yet she accuses Pycelle of dying for the short term political advantage of seeming like the strong ruler in the small council in in the end of a feast for crows. It's it's so hilarious. I can't wait till we get to a feast for crows in a couple years. You're dead on with the aura of parody. Like Cersei says these things in a feast for crows, and it's just like the other person. Like, doesn't even have time to process and react. Like, what you just said was wrong on so many levels and so unnecessarily breathtakingly obnoxious. I don't even know how to respond. Like, that's the primary pleasure of Cersei's chapters in The Feast for Crows, I think. And that is a great connection to this one here. Finally, in foreshadowing and groundwork, we get one more mention in this chapter of Tyrion's Great Chain. Again, like with the Taisha stuff, George brings it up in passing, in between matters that get much more attention. So it's planted in the back of our brains for later. But we don't get too suspicious about what Tyrion might be up to, so it still lands when Davos realizes he's stuck in hell along with the rest of the Baratheon fleet. And that balance is so hard to strike, and George does such a great job of it. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's even better like when you go back and you reread the scene with the chain because it's not simply that Tyrion is attempting to prevent Stannis' fleet from entering Blackwater Bay. He wants them to come in and then he's going to blow up the wildfire and spring the trap and have the chain co taut behind the cru- and have the entire fleet crushed against the weight of the chain. It's uh it's well, that's really brutal when we get to Davos's third chapter in A Clash of Kings, but it's a, it's a great setup that George integrates throughout A Clash of Kings that we're kind of always having these small moments in Tyrion's chapters where he's bringing up the chain, Cersei's going to bring up the chain, and Tyrion 8, and it's going to be interesting when that, all that kind of culminates at the Blackwater at the end of A Clash of Kings. Oh, it's so b- wonderfully horrible at this, all at the same time. It's it's the perfect climax in in so many ways, and we're going to have so much to talk about when we get there. So, shifting to our discussion portion of the episode, we do have this this fascinating moment in this chapter where all the political fury like is stripped away, and we get this like solo spotlight of cosmic dread on Tyrion when he's flashing back to these thoughts he had on the wall with Jon Snow and Ghost. What were they thoughts? What did he see? Well, he can't quite say, but something something was there. And you got to wonder, why is this here? This feels like a seed being planted by George to, to grow later. So we want to talk about how will George, in the books, follow up Tyrion's thoughts about the others here? What role will Tyrion play regarding the army of the dead? Will he consciously think back to this moment? Why did George include it, is what we're asking here. And what is lost, I think, by cutting it from the show? Yeah, it's interesting. This entire chapter is not featured at all, I believe, in season two of Game of Thrones. And this has led to my belief that a lot of Tyrion's more darker actions were whitewashed in Game of Thrones in order to make him a more noble-seeming character than the other characters in Team Lannister. But we could save that for a different discussion down the road. We've got tons of Tyrion chapters we could talk about that come come later in this this podcast. So this was an excellent question that you, you, you asked me and immediately got to my mind thinking about Tyrion and Alistair as precursors to Tyrion, Lannister, and Marwyn the Mage's relationship in The Wind's Winter. So as we know, Tyrion Lannister ends up in Essos in A Dance with Dragons and his outside of Marine at the start of the Battle of Fire and the start of The Winds of Winter. And we also know that another character is coming to Essos, namely Marwyn the Mage, who I know Emmett has very sad did not appear in A Dance with Dragons. This is a character that George has specifically references on his way to to Danny in Marine, so he is going to show up at some point in the Winds of Winter in Danny's storyline. And I think this idea of Tyrion and Marwyn interacting and being in the same place and same setting with each other has led to this idea that there's likely going to be conflict between these two. And this is something we've theorized about in the past, that they're going to be coming in conflict specifically over how they advise Daenerys Targaryen in which direction she should go when she gets to Westeros. On one hand, Marwyn just left Old Town with Sambo Tarly's confirmation of the return of the others and the walking of the dead. And he plans to bring that word to Danny and act as her Grand Maester. And on the other hand, Tyrion has also arrived, as we said, and has brought vital information about the usurper Aegon, in quotation marks, Targaryen, also in quotation marks, who has gone ahead and invaded Westeros without Danny and her dragons. So my question to you, Emmett, is Tyrion, are Tyrion and Marwyn going to fight over the direction to steer Danny, and whether her invasion is going to go north or south come the Winds of Winter, or more likely a Dream Spring? I think you can see so clearly that George has set up this gauntlet of advisors for Daenerys and the Winds of Winter, and presumably they will be, yeah, uh, you know, pulling her down this path and the other one, each having a different argument to make. Beyond Tyrion and Marwyn, you've got like the Red Priests, Makuro and Benero, who are very interested in her. You have pre-established characters in Danny's storyline like Jorah and Barristan and Grey Worm and so on. And but Marwyn is particularly interesting for a lot of reasons. 
But the main one, yeah, is that he's specifically been sent there to warn her of the others, which, you know, she has never heard of as far as we know, even in the in the mists of time. And it does seem likely that uh, Tyrion and Marwan will come into conflict, not only because they're both strong personalities, but because, you know, there's really nothing for Tyrion to profit in if Danny immediately goes off to save the world against the ice zombies. Tyrion isn't particularly useful in such a, you know, apocalyptic fight, and it doesn't uh, doesn't help his goals of taking down House Lannister from within. I absolutely agree, and I think the other crucial aspect is that Marwyn and Tyrion are bringing really unique information sets to Tyrion, to to Danny rather. Tyrion knows about Young Grift, as you said. I love Young Grift, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's the only one that seemingly knows about him, besides maybe Makoro, who has the vision of the different dragons that he reveals to Tyrion in Tyrion's eighth chapter in Dance of Dragons. Marwyn is the only one who's going to show up in Danny's court, knowing about the others and having some sort of confirmation. And this kind of brings us back to how this story back from the Clash of Kings of Sir Alistair Thorne appearing at the court of Tyrion Lannister in King's Landing is going to be interplaying with how Tyrion evaluates the information that Marwyn brings to the table. You know, something that strikes me about this chapter with the full canon of show in mind and at least five books written, hopefully six soon, is that Tyrion might believe that he's still right about laughing off Sir Alistair. I mean, the end of the world never came, right? Or Tyrion would have known. I mean, the apocalypse has never (laughs) shown up in Westeros. So, I mean, I imagine the scenario where Tyrion flashes back to this scene from A Clash of Kings and uses it to mock Marwyn. Oh, maester, I've been hearing ghost stories since I was a child at Casterly Rock. Even when I was hand of the king, a night's watchman came claiming that the dead were walking and the end is nigh two years ago. Yet here we are. As much as we support Sam and know that Sam is correct in bringing the word of the others to Marwyn in A Feast for Crows, he doesn't bring any physical evidence. At least Alistair Thorne brought a withered hand that, you know, is still moving at some point before, you know, kind of withered away and, and, and while he was still, still waiting around. And I mean, that... The, the tragedy, though, is that Marwyn's right. Samuel Tarley is right. The Long Night absolutely is coming. It's only just taking its sweet-ass time coming south. The tragic structure is exactly right. Marwyn in this scenario is like the, the Cassandra, is the prophet who's being ignored, even though, you know, the hero could take advantage of it and tragically doesn't. And I love the framework you're setting up there about, you know, Marwyn embodies the, the supernatural side of the series. He's set up that way immediately in A Feast for Crows. He's the one hanging out by the docks and talking to the weird people from everywhere and learning spells, and he's nicknamed the Mage. And Tyrion embodies the political side of the series, the Game of Thrones. That's where he made his smarts. That's what he believes in. And that's, as you say, the information. I love you pointed out they're both bringing these two different sets of information. And it's like, which one will tempt Danny? Which path will she follow? The political or the magical? And I think there's there's strong evidence she will, at least at first, go for young Griff, in large part because of what, what Tyrion's telling her to do. So I think you can see this this great structure coming together of of Tyrion and Danny's worst angels colliding, and Marwyn as the kind of the heroic Cassandra figure who's going to be at least temporarily ignored. And you know I understand, of course, why Marwyn the Mage didn't show up in the show, and I understand cutting a scene here and there to make you know Tyrion overall a more <laughs> likable, relatable protagonist, especially when you have you know a, such a fun, charismatic performance from Peter Dinklage. But you do lose these layers in terms of the interplay between the Game of Thrones and the end of the world and Tyrion's role and all that. And I think you can see. The seeds of that being very, very important in terms of this this advisor's struggle over what Daenerys is to do. Absolutely, man. I think this is going to be something that we're going to get a lot of enjoyment from the chapters from the, from the Winds of Winter, whether it's going to be from Tyrion or Danny's point of view. But ultimately, I think you know we're seeing again uh, something that I, I talked about earlier in the in the podcast. 
Tyrion's villainy, Tyrion cynically manipulating information that he has in order to gain a short-term advantage of maybe gaining a place in Danny's court, all at the expense of the long-term advantage of having Danny go north to face the others and possibly save the lives of tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Man, that, that seems very much like Tyrion's story from, you know, Soup to Nuts in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I can't wait to read it come The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. And I think that about wraps us up for this episode on A Clash of Kings Tyrion 6. Thank you all so very much for listening and thank you to our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere ever you find our podcasts. And check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsadviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck and Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim, the Knight Who Was Guided by Voices, Sir Courtney, What Did the Five Fingers Say to the Face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, and our newest High Lord, Wisdom Benjicant, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and Morgan. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Wisdom Benjicant. Yeah, thank you all so very much, and welcome to Wisdom Benjica. We've enjoyed, I've enjoyed interacting with you on the Slack, and hope you stick around for a while. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Aria 6, in which George invokes centuries worth of war crimes en route to Harrenhal. Gosh, Emmett, why is this your favorite place in a song of ice and fire, Harrenhal? It just sucks. I mean, it really, really does, doesn't it? We're home, the cradle of my horrible birth. <laughs> I'm so pleased we've arrived at Harrenhal, which is a terrible tone to take coming into one of the, the most brutal, difficult-to-read chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, but bridge the gap we must. Yeah, it's a short chapter, and but we're going to have a lot to say about it, for sure. 